Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I am choosing to re-syndicate a recent episode of a podcast called The Next Billion Seconds Podcast for their series which they did called The Next Billion Cars where they look at the future of transport and how tech will enable the next billion vehicles to get around. In this episode, the host Drew Smith interviews Horace exploring the origins and future of micromobility per their description. Horace offers a blistering critique of the failure of the automotive sector to embody the new design possibilities offered by micromobility, transportation choices for our urban centers, and a powerful framework to rethink our transportation networks and cities. I listened to this and thought it was a great episode and one that I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in. So many thanks to the Next Billion Seconds team for letting us re-syndicate it here. And with that, here's Drew and Horace. Let's go. Is this thing on? Yeah, that's on. Don't have to. Hi, it's Drew Smith here, special correspondent for The Next Billion Cars. In the course of producing the show with Mark and Sal, I've had the chance to speak to some of the giants of the automotive industry. Now, let's see. There was Marte Rimac, who creates the world's most desirable electric hypercars. He joined me to talk about the challenges that electrification poses to the traditional car industry. Robin Chase, who founded the groundbreaking Zipcar car sharing service, helped me understand the future of mobility as a service. And Chris Bangle, who for close to a decade oversaw the most radical reimagining of automotive design while he was at BMW, explained why car companies would forever struggle to get their heads around a more equitable mobility future. But when I spoke to Horace Dediu for episode four of this season, he managed to wind all these threads and more into an analysis of the automotive industry and a vision of the future that was so compelling that it was hard to know what to share in just a short segment. You see, Horace isn't just the father of micromobility. He's studied the depths of the automotive industry, and he's also a renowned technology analyst with a focus on one of the most innovative companies in the world, Apple. This means that he's able to work across domains, identifying patterns and synthesizing insights from the intersection of technology, business and culture in ways that few others can match. There was so much good stuff in our conversation that it would simply be a waste not to share it with you all. So for this very special episode of The Next Billion Cars, it gives me huge pleasure to present the full interview with Horace. I really hope you enjoy it. We open by talking about the origins of the term micromobility and how it was born out of Horace's understanding of the profound challenges facing the automotive industry. Um, all right. Why don't you start off by telling us uh, what your name is, who you are, and your relationship to the term micromobility? Um, my name's Horace Dedu. Um, I am co-founder of 
micromobility industries, also previously co-founder of Bond Mobility, founder of Asimco, and podcaster of uh, The Critical Path and a few other activities over the years. The second part of the question, my relationship to micromobility, I um, coined the term in the summer and spring of 2018 to describe what I thought was a missing idea, which was that non-automotive mobility options, specifically electric ones, were divided into many categories and no one was seeing the entire picture. So I, I thought it was appropriate that we should call this um, alternate mobility something and micromobility popped in my head. And it was um, it was something that I retrospectively thought was very uh, similar to the microcomputing era. Microcomputers didn't have a name. And once they were named, they became much more obvious to everyone. For the benefit of our kind of future curious audience. How would you define micromobility? What does it encompass? Because over time, actually, when I've been asked this question, I've given different answers because the simplest way to put it is, is, is that it's negative space in the sense that if you see a picture um, and what you're not seeing or rather what you should be seeing is also what isn't in the picture. Right. Um, and that's kind of a negative definition. Like you could say, well... You could try to encompass everything. So let's say that the picture you're looking at is that of the Mona Lisa. And then you could say, well, everything but the Mona Lisa is the background, the the color, the lighting, the, you know, nuance, the, uh, you know, intentions even of, of the person painting. Uh, you could just say that it's non-automotive mobility. Right. Uh, and non-automotive personal mobility, meaning trying to move people as opposed to goods traffic and, and cargo, although micromobility is going to eventually be used there as well. If you look at history of mobility in general, automobility is regulated and is, is defined by law in many countries. Um, micromobility is um, everything that uh, moves people singularly that isn't a car. Right. It leaves open, I guess, the opportunity for what I've heard you describe previously as kind of this, this Cambrian explosion. Of, of new ways to move around. Indeed, indeed. And, and this is one of the things we are doing at Ride Review. Ride Review, we set up simply to catalog and allow users to find vehicles. But even that's been a challenge to try to categorize all the vehicle types. How many wheels? How many configurations? Right. It's a very diff difficult and it's a moving target. Um, it suffices to say that, you know, everything from one wheel to six wheels is considered everything from powered and unpowered. Um, obviously, there's there's a legacy unpowered micromobility. Motorcycles are included. Microcars are included. Golf carts are included. What Europeans call quadricycles are included. Right. Some Japanese forms of uh, cars, which are called K-cars, might be included. Uh, most typically, yes, they are, but uh, there might be some exceptions. It, it's it's a very diverse group of products and vehicles. And, and on, on top of that, the complexity is that there are, there are services al along with them, uh, which have become part of micromobility. So people would talk about shared versus owned. There are models for uh, sensing and data. 
uh, which are becoming businesses as well. So there's a, there's so much activity. It's very difficult to be singular about the definition. Understood. And it's interesting that you touch on ride review there because I guess I sort of wear two hats in a way. My my background is as as a car designer. That's what I trained in. My interests these days very much lie in kind of the ethnography and the anthropology around how we get around and how that kind of affects our relationship with the world around us and and the people within it. Mm. But just as a resource to kind of go and look through Ride Review and just see how rapidly this space is evolving is 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 just really delightful um, on, on a personal level. You you mentioned that you know, micromobility is kind of everything that, that automobility or, you know, like what we traditionally might think of as automobility is not. The idea of micromobility actually emerged from your study of the traditional automotive sector. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's negative space. I myself began my studying of the mobility space because I, I came from the mobile phone industry. So I, I spent a decade with Nokia. You know, I've seen the transition from, and before that, by the way, I was in the computing world because I, I, I studied computer science and I worked in IT and I was very much steeped in all of the history and, and lore and, uh, and technology and tech, you know, details. I, I have a computer engineering degree as well. So I, I, I really understood computers before I realized that they would be replaced mainly by phones. And that, that was a very important understanding because you, you, this is also right. part of the logic of disruption is to understand what is the limitation of an existing technology and business model and, and form factor and everything else. And everyone is obsessed, incredibly obsessed with optim- optimization of that. And do not see the something else coming along that 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 supplants it. And the one that comes along is very right. much a David versus Goliath type of competition because that which comes along is extremely opposite in terms of capability, in terms of power, in terms of efficiency, in terms of everything that you thought was important. And so when the automobile, so in order to understand, this is a this is a point I don't make often enough. But in order to understand micromobility super well, you have to understand automobility. In fact, and to understand automobility super well, you have to actually understand infrastructures. You have to understand roads. I I wrote a piece in 2015 called The Entrance Guide to the Automobile Industry. Um, It came to be also known as the Ten Commandments of the Automobile Industry. And it got passed around even at places like Toyota. And one of those... uh, commandments was if you want to know the future of the car study roads right it, it's super important that you know you understand the dependencies that cars have in fact if you were to add them up you'd see that the car is one of the most fragile things we've ever invented yeah. because it depends on so much and it depends on government it, the government itself must grant 15 different types of licenses to exist right um, and, and so it, it, it can disappear at the stroke of a pen. It literally can. Yeah. And you, you can destroy the automobile industry and the automobile society by writing new laws about parking. Right. So this is one of the other tenets that came up later, much later, which was that as parking goes, so goes the car. In other words, you turn up the parking and the car goes up. You turn down the parking the car goes down, and in fact, it can go to zero as well. 
And it's entirely at the whim of whoever writes the regulations. So th this is why, you know, from a political point of view, you can imagine a future, very easily imagine a future where the car just disappears completely. Which, you know, it's fascinating because through things like the work that I do with, with my newsletter and podcast looking out, you know, I, I, I've been starting to talk about, I guess, the systems level dependencies, right, that car culture has, you know, and I know for a lot of the people with whom I used to work in the automotive industry, that just, that just doesn't occur to them. No, no, indeed. And it didn't occur to the computer industry um, insiders of which I was one. I mean, not to forget that we had before the personal computer, we had the mini computer, but for the mini computer, we had the mainframe computer, which, uh, which, you know, was itself pre preceded by tabulating machines, um, everything that IBM invented. And, and so those, those folks, did not see that the next generation of microprocessor would enable something that would completely disable their all of their work. So I don't want to be just polemical about it and sort of apocalyptic, but I, I'm very conscious and I own, this is another thing people may not know very well, I own 11 cars. Right. I, I know cars extremely well. I've built, I've built my own electric car by converting a 1972 Volkswagen Beetle, which therefore meant I had to disassemble and reassemble it in all of its parts. <laughs> I, I, I have, uh, you know, I have an engineering degree, electrical engineering. And so, you know, it was a fun puzzle to solve. I had to source parts. Wow. I had to understand, you know, a number of things about suspension and, and battery weight and all these other chemistry issues. So I'm not shy about cars, and I'm not a tree hugger. I'm not an environmentalist. Sure. The more you understand the car, the more you should understand its fragility. The more you should understand that if something else comes along, you should be embracing that vector of of potential value as well as as its um, you know asymmetry, as I call it, asymmetric competition is is the, what the word asymco means. The other thing I would I would like to, you know, if your audience is an automotive one, um, the understanding of how the auto industry has evolved, I've studied very deeply. Yeah. I've studied it uh, painfully. Um, to understand, it, yeah, because I, I you know, I, I know about the, product, the production systems. I know about the questions related to how important manufacturing is to the to the industry and, and how power flows through i know that feeling assembly go line. on <laughs> um but also understanding you know the role of design yeah. the role of materials the role i visited many factories where I, I it's one of my hobbies i actually go visit factories and i sure. visited many automotive factories i visited um from toyota to mm -hmm. bmw uh you know looking at at how the cars are made but what I what I would emphasize also, by the way, quantitatively understanding the size of the market, the value of the market, the number of jobs in the market. The, the, I, I've looked at the um, uh, uh, the databases that are available publicly uh, from o OICA, which is the organization of automotive manufacturers, um, and and I know where they are made. I know culturally what that means if you're an automate. Uh, automaking nation sure. um so no no you know i'm not an anti-automobile person but i have i have to say that i've never seen anything as as exciting as micromobility if you are a student of the car 
and you know the history of the Volkswagen, you know the right. history of the Model T, you know the history of Toyota, of Mahindra, India, no matter what, nothing I've ever seen compares to what micromobility is. The tornado that's coming with that, um, both in terms of product, in terms of power, in terms of ability to serve billions of people, which is something the automobile yep. industry has failed to do, failed miserably to do. We've had 120 plus years. We've had all these, you know, pro over a century. And yet there's only about 1.2 billion drivers in the world today. Um, 1.2 billion out of eight. If this was the phone industry, uh, people would have given up long ago because it, it, it's not catching on. That would have been the, the, the observation. That is a smaller right. ecosystem than Apple has. So it was sort of like how many Apple users, and Apple is about 20% of the market, as you know. Its ability to serve, even with all of the energy and effort involved in automobile scaling, it hasn't managed to solve this puzzle. And I think it, it goes back to this question of size and ultimately the, the, the inability to scale down. Um, the, you know, the phone and the personal computer managed to reach everyone on the planet because they could scale down. The automobile industry, if anything, it had a momentary lapse where it scaled down during the 1950s with, with cars like the Fiat 500, uh, the Mini, 2CV, uh, but then it, it, it became obsessed with the gigantism and now is in, um, in the death throes of, of being um, what I call mega mobility. Yeah. Gigantism and, and just horrible, horrible destruction of, of everything. In, in, in incredible. So when I first kind of got keyed into to, to micro mobility um, uh, when I was working at, at, at Geely, um, uh, I was working for 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 what they termed their their new mobility startup, uh, Lincoln Co. Right, and I and I went there to sort of help them establish a, a human centered design capability, uh, which, as you probably know, is 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 a far stranger concept in the automotive sector than anybody would on the outside would likely believe. Um, and I introduced kind of the idea of micro mobility, and you know, sort of based on on what I'd read of your work kind of started thinking through this stuff as, as perhaps the future of, of, of how we might get around or one potential future of how we might get around. And I think perfectly in line with, with Clay Christensen's idea that, you know, disruptive innovations first kind of appear as toys to the incumbents. It was amazing the extent to which I was kind of laughed out of rooms. Yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. talking yeah. No, about it's, this it's, stuff. It's so common, yeah. yeah. You've talked about one of the challenges for the automotive sector kind of being this this gigantism, right? And I guess all of, also the fragility of the system which has been built up around the production of cars. How else would you kind of define the challenge facing traditional automotive uh, manufacturers, the, the challenge that's posed by, by micromobility. What the industry is experiencing is, is in many ways natural and it has happened over and over again. It's almost, it, sometimes I put it that it, it's, it's, it, would be, it would be surprising if it did not happen, um, which, right. is, which is the loss of humility, the uh, inability... <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, 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 no I, 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 I hear you. I hear you. No, no, yeah. but it, it, it's so true. It's true in every individual's uh, journey through life. It's true of every yep. company. It's true of every, even every nation. 
when you succeed, you necessarily build up, you build up a sense of pride and you build up a yeah. sense of achievement um, and a knowledge base, if you will. This is how we do things here. This is how it's done. This We know what the customer wants. And we've gained that through very painful lessons. So one isn't easily willing to give it up. But there are, again, philosophers out there, including Asian ones from the ancient times, which brought us the notion of the beginner's mind. And that right. I don't need to, you know, cite Western philosophy. I can cite Eastern philosophy. I can cite Middle Eastern philosophy. Whichever whichever part of the world you may live in has a tradition of understanding that human nature goes through this cycle of uh, loss of uh, loss of innocence, uh, um, a gain of mastery. Um, mm. And and a collapse of 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 the uh, due to hubris. It's written in in uh, literature. It's written in Bible uh, and and other scripture. So it's not a it's not at all uncommon. And um, and so the only point to be made is again, and those smart people who run these companies. And I don't use the term, you know, sarcastically. They are smart. Um, the sure. whole theory of disruption is how great companies fail, how smart managers make bad decisions. Right. It's not at all about them being unintelligent. But the problem is that you, if you lose humility, if you, you, you cannot gain it back easily. The hero's journey here is when a manager in a firm learns, masters something, loses humility, but then is redeemed through a cathartic process of regaining that humility. That last right. step is the most difficult one, and it's almost never, never done. In fact, that's one of the things about Steve Jobs that made him a superpower, was that he was able to regain his humility due to years in the wilderness, which he experienced after being fired from the company that he founded. So he started Apple, became super arrogant about it, got fired, and then uh, restarted it effectively, you know, 15 years later. Now, that is so rare. Again, you have to have a person who's like willing to sacrifice themselves over and over again, because who the hell cares? If you've, if you've, even if you've been fired, you probably have enough money to go on and chill out the rest of your life. But he decided, no, he's going to go into the breach again. Right. So th that is a very difficult thing for a human being to do. And I don't even claim that I can do it. But I, I would say that it's so rare that this is what is at the heart of this question of disruption is the ability to to understand that when you are at the peak of your game when you know when when you're the master of the universe that you must humble yourself and say i know nothing that is the most important decision you make um the, every pope there's a great you know um tradition uh, that when the pope is sworn in he's told in the ceremony that um, you too shall die soon or something to that effect do not think that you're invincible so anyway right. I, I i digress but the point is that spoken by the way i've spoken to japanese companies who i'll name one of them honda mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. started out making motorcycles actually not even probably mopeds is what we would call them very small vehicles growing through the the civic phase into an automaker uh establishing themselves as a very you know prestigious automaker even with with a new brand acura etc right unable unable to do anything about micro mobility right enjoying yeah. the idea in an intellectual sense 
you know, doing studies, possibly developing uh, prototypes, cannot commit to it, you see. Um, right. BMW, great company that used to make motorcycles as well, actually still does. Um, right. Doesn't understand micromobility. Um, now, the all, now, here's the other thing. This is the other thing. Is that the, one of the other paradoxes of studying the auto industry is that everyone is absolutely excited about the future of the industry because of other things than micromobility. They're excited about electrification. They're excited about right. uh, self-driving. They're excited about um, uh, communicating uh, uh, technologies. Uh, they're excited about sharing and other business models. This is, this is encapsulated in the in an acronym CASE, C-A-S-C, yep. communication, autonomy, sharing, and electric. And, uh, you know, the consultants are out there selling these ideas. A lot of pundits out there discussing how this is so, quote, unquote, disruptive. None of these are disruptive. They're all sustaining. Right. Now, you might see a little bit market share shift here and there. You might see some entrants coming in, as we see with electric, but none of it is particularly asymmetric. In fact, they're all launching huge vehicles. They're all launching super expensive vehicles. They're all launching super powerful vehicles that go much faster than any legal limit is allowing them to do. And so they are appealing to the early adopters who are actually very wealthy individuals. Right. This isn't this isn't a movement to mobilize the next billion or the next three billion or the next five billion, which is what you actually should be thinking about. Instead, they're saying, let's make a better car. And I've always said that one of the tenets of micromobility is don't give me a better car. Cars are good enough. Give me a worse car. Any innovator out there who says, hey, Horace, I've got a great idea for a worse car. I'm all ears. <laughs> Coming up after the break. Horace talks about the original Fiat 500 and why it's the most perfect car ever made and why we won't see its kind again, at least not from car makers. We also touch on that most intriguing of topics, the Apple car, and why it's probably not a great idea. But it's, it, look at the Fiat 500. Totally. I, I'm writing a book on micromobility and there's a chapter, I'm giving this away now, sorry. But um, spoiler alert, uh, there's a chapter on the Fiat 500. Mm -hmm. The Fiat 500 is known by many as the greatest car ever made. Right. And I'm not making this up. I mean, this is top gear. This is automotive royalty has decreed that the Fiat 500 is probably one of the best cars ever made. It's also considered one of the sexiest cars ever made. It's an unbelievable design. People sing praises to it. And I point to the fact that it came out at a time when, in the 1950s, when Americans were building gigantic cars, and um, it was a, it was a, it was a design uh, kind of trying to mobilize people. Right. It mobilized Italy. Uh, the Fiat 600 mobilized Spain, Portugal. It went to the Eastern Europe, in Yugoslavia and other places. So it 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 re was really a, a, a powerful product to kind of really bring more people to automobility. Uh, and it ran for decades, and it was even replicated in the last 20 years with a facsimile, and so it became iconic. And I put it to the audience that the auto industry cannot today make a Fiat 500. No. The Fiat 500 of 1952 can no longer be created, no matter how much money or resources you have available, because it's actually illegal. 
And this is one, one of the questions that must come up then is, well, how did we as a society progress to such an extent that when we make affordable mobility for billions illegal? And, and I guess this is, you know, this is a really interesting question when you look at um, electrification, right, as, as a technology and sort of the second and third order consequences of installing, you know, extremely heavy battery packs, uh, extremely resource intensive battery packs, um, you know, battery packs that are built, you know, with, with kind of morally dubious supply chains in some cases, uh, to these vehicles. Um, it actually kind of completely unnecessary quantities of battery. Right. Um, I find this one of the great paradoxes. This is why when I go through my thinking, is I like I make lists of paradoxes. Right. I make lists of absurdities, mm-hmm. and I, I I revel and dwell on the comic nature of the situation. And yet, most people don't even know to, n- n- recognize that these are comical or or absurd. Um, and and this is why I try to publish, uh, you know, these reductions to absurdity which should get people to respond wait a minute and it's it's it, to me it's telling to see the responses when you say well there's no point to having 300 miles or 500 kilometer range in a car because you hardly ever go that far right and people begin to bend into all kinds of twisted logic to try to justify the absurd nature of one in 10,000 probability that you might actually need that and then I would ask, well, if you do really need that, you you know, you you could say you need an airplane, or you could say you need a right a, a heavy truck to carry an entire house worth of contain content. It, it, it doesn't make sense when you when you go to to such absurdity. But then the, somehow the market loves to go there, loves to you know both the buyers and and the sellers are trying to make sure that that product exists and make sure that the opposite does not exist. And that, that's why I think there's an opportunity. Whenever you see this kind of mad rush into insanity, you 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 have to step back and say, "Well, that's that's comforting." I'm just reflecting on on a piece that I wrote a little while ago, um, and it was either about it was a, a University of Geneva study uh, that was looking at at kind of the ideal amount of range to to cover kind of 95 percent of, of tasks that people wanted to carry out with their car you know it was they they they, they settled on the idea of about 250 kilometers right i closed the article by saying you know for an industry that that has has built itself on the idea that more is more and that less is a bore it's going to be very interesting to see themselves if they can contort themselves to the idea that less is enough no, I, I, this is why I've given up. I, I, I thought about it since 2015, as I said, in the, and I just and I looked under every rock. I've looked and talked talk to as many people as I could find, and it's 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 very 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 hard. And you lose heart. And what, what's been most heartbreaking is the companies that are entering the market today mm-hmm. with great resources, great minds, great thinkers. Companies like Tesla and BYD, mm-hmm. and they are choosing, even though they have a clean sheet of paper, they're choosing to do the opposite of what's common sense. Right. And uh, that that implies that they've studied the status quo to such a degree that they would rather go with status, you know, the, con- the normative behaviors rather than asking themselves some fundamental principles. And possibly they couldn't ever get investors on board 
with these ideas of of solving real problems um meaning access and 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 having mobility for all um rather than you know the only things they could sell because again they don't i know they don't work in a vacuum it's not just the founders who might must make a decision on strategy they must do so with a business plan with investors uh, deep pockets and so on um and there's this just a general consensus that if you start an auto industry, uh, an auto automotive company, then you you have to have a superlative product that is way beyond the reach of ninety nine percent of the people. Um, and, the, and the argument you make is like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll solve the problem at that end, you know, for the one percent, right. and then we'll eventually go down the cost curve. Uh, it's and like make trickle it down economics, right? <laughs> right. Well, this was indeed the, the model of the early auto industry. But but let's look at Tesla. Tesla is twenty years old, right? Uh, and and now you know the average cost of a Tesla is something above sixty thousand right. dollars, and it's not at like even the sixty thousand is the low end model, and that that is not a very well appointed model, um, in in you know sort of traditional luxury. But it, it's it's extremely expensive because of all the battery involved and there's a, a healthy margin and that's another thing by the way if, if you did have margin to play with w- why not you know work at break even and try to uh, try to iterate your product so that you can get it focused on the low end right um and and you know at least have a portfolio where you cover a bit more of the prices down to the you know from high to low as apple does because you know, even though they're a premium product, they do have something entering the market at three hundred dollars or something like that, three fifty, um, up to twelve hundred. But but that's not what's happening. So maybe BYD is the only one. But anyway, we can quibble about this. But it perhaps becomes sort of the litmus test of a post Jobs Apple, right? You know, if if Apple's mobility efforts in mobility amount to something, um, to what kind of market are they directing those efforts? You know, yeah, is we it spend the... an hour on my on my thinking <laughs> because I'm also an Apple analyst, and I've been, of course, I've been writing about Apple a very long time, longer than I've been talking about micromobility. Um, so, but but yes, indeed, and and this is another lens through which I can look and say I can see exactly why Apple would not is finding difficulty in in entering the auto market because they're finding it difficult to bring to bear the technologies they have in a way that moves a needle in any meaningful way they need you know the, right. one of the conditions they have is they have to make a significant contribution to the to the to the market they have to move uh, i i use these words as move the needle but in either discovering a new job to be done that the product yep. can be hired for or attacking non-consumption so finding people who are non-consumers of automobility and offering it right. to them in which case that's a very difficult thing to do when you have a used car market because right now the 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 other thing people don't study very well is the you know the fact that a, a car goes through four owners at least the the non-consuming non-consuming market is addressed today by used cars and the the new jobs to be done market is like asking okay let's say you're you're in a saturated market what could you use a car for that you haven't thought of yet and that that is the premise of self-driving is saying well, let the car do the driving and I'll use that car interior as personal right. private space where I can do other things than drive or be a passenger. I could be 
engaged in something else. But that's just making the car into a cocoon that becomes, you know, uh, a miniature uh, 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 home or a miniature right. uh, study or something of that kind, right? So then it's all interior discussion. You're all just talking about, well, how can I make so much uh, of this of this space? And what does improvement in that market look like? We'll just make it bigger. So make it a, a minivan, then make it a, a van, then make it a uh, an RV. So I did this analysis and I, I followed this logic and I said, the future, according to the incumbent logic today is that we're going to have autonomous recreational vehicles orbiting urban areas self-driven um waiting for their owner to sort of summon them and then they can go inside and enjoy you know as if they were at home enjoy their living space right and those vehicles which are orbiting uh urban areas are doing so because the government lets them. Right. Otherwise, it would be charging a real estate pricing for the fact that you're having a mobile home. Right. O- occupying public space indefinitely, consuming huge amounts of energy and space. And then economically, that becomes, oh, it's just a home. Therefore, we're going to charge 150000 plus for it. That, that, right. that does not resolve into any kind of logic where, where we're giving affordable transportation to people so you see you know it just it just yet another reduction to an absurdity so so if we take kind of the 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 flip side of that dare i say somewhat dystopian vision um and and we think about uh you and me perhaps as as urban dwellers in the world of 2030 how how does micromobility change the way we move around how does it change the way our stuff moves Mm. around there are many, many analogies I can use, but I'm going to pick one that I love the most. I think automobility increasingly is working towards a future where you're invited to look down. You're invited <laughs> to isolate yourself from other people and the world around you, mm. where you're in a cocoon, which uh, makes the journey not just... On, uh, more pleasant but invisible and therefore you uh, you 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 go through a wormhole you sort of like the the you know hyperdrive or hyperloop or whatever you want to call it it's like you enter in one place and you emerge at another place it's like what aviation has become there's no wonder of flight there's no wonder of the universe in fact the miracle of looking out the window and seeing the world from 30,000 feet amongst the clouds that people dreamed of many, many centuries. No, it's a tube you 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 inject yourself into and you are ejected out of it at the end of your destination. That is the inevitable future of automobility. Mm-hmm. Micromobility is looking up. Micromobility is an exercise in the design of everything that is seen outside the vehicle. Right. And therefore, the journey is everything. The journey and the ambiance, and, and you're no, no longer looking through a t- TV screen as it was. You know, there was a great uh, cult book in the 1970s called um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I know it, was it well. It a cult classic. And the author, I once, one phrase struck me, is like the author who was riding a motorcycle across the United States said, 
sitting in a car is looking through the television, looking at the television screen, whereas riding on a motorcycle is being there. Right. And he observed a very, you know, obvious thing for anyone who does actually attempt this, this uh, riding through, through, through the countryside. It, 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 you, you know, it hits you hard and it's a difficult thing to endure, but then it also in, enlightens you in ways that you couldn't imagine. But in, in, in that sense, then the, dual, the, the, the distinction, the, the dichotomy between micromobility and automobility is that it, it one will eventually progress to this idea of, of the journey is to be avoided. The other one it progresses towards the idea that the journey is, is to be enjoyed. But as a result, you know, you, you also, if it's in an urban environment, you want to make the, the city itself better in order for that per- journey to be more interesting. And as a result, it, it, you know, the design, you know, if you are a designer, I would put it to you this way. When you're designing an automobile, it will become a question of designing a living space mm. or, or, again, uh, um, a cocoon. But to design an auto, uh, a micromobility vehicle is to design everything that's on the street. Right. And, and it's no longer a vehicular exercise. It's a, it's a community building exercise. And I find that absolutely fascinating because, again, most people who are designers will say, well, I'm just going to stick to my, my brief. I'll, I'll solve the problem here. What's my design surface? I, do I have a big screen to work with, a small screen to work with? Um, well, in, in case of automobility, you have no screen to work with. You might see it through a, a pair of augmented reality glasses, which I think will come and will be very attractive for uh, auto, uh, for micromobility. It will be completely useless for automobility, by the way. This <laughs> right. is another paradox. Um, but the idea of micromobility is that it actually, because it's a heads-up experience. So just to summarize, automobiles, heads down, micromobility, heads up. Right. You've you've kind of already touched on it a, a couple of times um, in the in the conversation. There was first the first there was sort of this idea of you know micromobility is sort of the negative space. It's the space that isn't kind of currently legislated, right? Mm. Um, you also in in this idea of kind of looking in versus looking out or looking down versus looking up. Um, that it it actually becomes about the space around the vehicle um, just as much as it is about kind of the, the the fit between the rider and the vehicle itself that that becomes a design consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big themes for this season of the next billion cars is kind of about well, it's around the systems level changes required to to kind of enable new technologies to take hold. Um, beyond sort of this philosophical shift around design and and perhaps the the legislative environment what else needs to change in order for micromobility to 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 thrive and and well survive and and thrive I and mean, it's going to survive but 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 to yeah, actually think, yeah the trillion dollar question is one of infrastructures which right. is why I also spent so much time thinking about infrastructures even in the early days, I, I came across a book which was very instrumental to my thinking. Was it's called? It's out of print now, but it's it's um, by a gentleman named. Uh, he's a professor, I think, at Yale called um, Arnulf Grubler. And he he wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of Infrastructures. He right. he was uh, I think it was written in the early nineties, um, and 
the the book you know uses the S curve uh, mathematical model to show the rise of infrastructures, but also the fact that they fall in a similar way have to be replaced by something else, and that historically we've had multiple transportational infrastructures, uh, starting with uh, well ancient roads, then became mm-hmm. canals, then came um, railroads, then came more modern roads. And in parallel, we've also had a network of of uh, harbors and and ports. And so, so there's a there's, if you look at the global questions related to mobility, the vehicle is interesting, but it actually is entirely dependent on these very very grand uh, projects that need to be uh, implemented with with uh, effectively with the government and even international cooperation. Christensen logic also shows that the vehicle comes first. It induces demand for infrastructure. The infrastructure is built, which causes the vehicle in a sort of feedback loop to get stronger and mm-hmm. and so iterating and in the in you know so it's not a single uh, a implies B. It's sort of A implies B implies A, and so it, it it continues to 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 evolve, and that's why it's it's strengthened by this you know by this um, uh, synergy this this uh, symbiosis, but it 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 also is broken at some point through the introduction of an alternative, and this is why it's it's very difficult for us, uh, you know, fish in a sea to imagine uh, an an environment without water. Um, and but right. it, indeed, you know, and this is one of the questions of the book is like, what is the periodicity? In other words, how fast do these things change? How long do they last? Um, th- does the socioeconomic order determine anything about them? So is it important that you have, you know, free market economics or does it does it not? Um, so there's a lot of these profound questions related to infrastructures. I, I find very interesting because. Um, it, it, it gives one hope that the fact that there is a periodicity, that there is a cyclicality, and that infrastructures do um, uh, fall as well as rise, that that cadence is there historically, um, and so that gives one hope that it's possible to to rebuild the world uh, according to micromobility as opposed to automobility. And that means the roads and infrastructures. Because you know, in European terms, we we've seen the the car enter into a a non automotive um, milieu and environment and and be absorbed in some way, you know, um, right, uh, give or take. But and 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 so there there's there's potential for that to be undone. Um, and and that's summarized to me in a sort of a more profound business logic, um, business uh, term, I should say, which is the the notion of sunk cost. And a sunk right. cost is when you you realize that all that effort you put in, all that money you put in um, to something that is no longer uh, viable in the future, you should ignore that that cost. It shouldn't weigh on your decision making in other words we've spent 50 let's say 50 trillion dollars on building an automotive infrastructure and somebody comes along and says hey i have something better that doesn't need any of that you shouldn't go around saying yeah but we've spent 50 trillion dollars we shouldn't give up on 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 that old infrastructure when our my argument is that is a sunk cost by definition you should indeed ignore it because what's coming next is much better 
and you're holding yourself back by sticking with the old. Um, and the only difference between sort of like everybody agreeing and disagreeing or disagreeing with this is that is that maybe not everyone agrees that the next thing is better. But as soon as you have a plurality, a plurality, if not a majority of people who say, oh, the mm. next thing is better, then the old will just, will, nobody will really care. As, like, we don't fight today over the need to preserve canals or railway lines or, or, or you know, maybe some people do for nostalgic reasons, for, for, you know, for efficiency reasons. But mostly the world's moved on beyond the 19th and, and even 18th centuries. And as far as infrastructures are concerned, I mean, do we still care for sailing boats um, um, only for recreational use? We, we right. um, though they are wonderful, but, but this is the, this is the essence of the matter. So my my appeal is is to people to understand that what what is possible today with micro mobility is indeed so much better, so much more um, powerful for for everyone. Um, that we should actually say that, yeah, let's ignore all that sunk cost, all that uh, infrastructure we built for automobility, because that's holding us back right now. And and that's one of the most difficult things to argue with uh, people who say uh, we, we can't give up the old. Uh, they, they're just right. so attached to it emotionally, but not, I think, logically. You talk about uh, micromobility primarily uh, in terms of its impact on urban environments right how do we address kind of the the interurban movement of of people and stuff there are the, the current kind of armored vehicles that we use that we consider as cars uh which are armored because they need to withstand the collisions right and they need to withstand collisions because they're tended they tend to go fast or they're allowed to go fast um, so this sort of uh, the the armored concept of, of 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 mobility may still have purpose into you know in, in in these longer journeys, and I do segment by trip distance, meaning that I think about what's suitable at short distances should be different than what's suitable at long distances, and that we should have multiple vehicles for multiple distance types, just like we have multiple sizes. Of computers, right. so we have wearable computers, and we have pocket computers, and we have um, uh, computers in our bags, and then we have computers uh, that are not movable at all. Um, and and so we we've got, gotten accustomed to not, you know. And uh, and I remember early days, people who had powerful desktop computers said, "There's no way a laptop could replace what I what I use." Right. Um, and then the laptop user said, "There's no way a handheld device can replace what I use." Um, so now we're at that point where, but we we have multiple. You know, so I'm speaking to you now on a on a on a laptop computer, which suits me very well. But I also have happen to have a phone and a watch. Um, so I think the future is going to be segmented, where for long distances there'll be large vehicles, and for short distances there will be small vehicles. And um, and and so the vast majority of trips are short, and therefore we just reach for the for the convenient product that fits the short trip. Of course, you can use the large one. I could be carrying my laptop around and making all my phone calls with it, and all my social media, and all my photographs with it. I just I think that's a bad idea, right. and everyone agrees. But we don't yet agree that it's a bad idea to drive a very large vehicle with a lot of armor plate, with a lot of range and capacity and power 
for short trips, we somehow are accustomed to this notion. So my, my, that, that's the long answer. The short answer is there will be a spectrum of vehicles available and we'll hire the right one for the right job. I do believe like, you know, uh, urban environments will, will be just like we have tractors and we have trucks and farm vehicles used on farms. And that's perfectly normal. We don't, we don't object to the fact that sometimes a combine harvester is blocking the road in front of us because we understand that the farmer needs to move it from field to field. Um, but we are facing a future where every urban driver is going to drive a combine harvester. Right. And that, that, that's just absurd. So my, 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 um, my argument is, is subtle. And when I presented to auto executives, I said, look at the market for distances, look at the market for trips. If you do, you'll see there's short, medium, and long, possibly more defined, more, more, uh, refined than that, but understand that what is small is more than half of the distance traveled. And as a result, you will have your cars, but they'll probably be half as many needed as there are today. Right. And you will probably also be hired for jobs and journeys, which are the least valuable journeys that people make, meaning that the dollar per kilometer in the urban area is far more like, you know, a taxi ride in the city is very right. expensive because at the end of it, you more likely to make some money. You know, there's dollars at the end of the journey. And so my argument to the automotive industry is that you're basically going to be an ex-urban rural product for people who don't make very much money. And if so, you should adjust your thinking. Right. Right. Um, wow. That, um, that was just superb. I, I can't thank you enough. It's, it's, it's just been the most incredible delight to, to, to have this conversation oh, with you oh, today. Please, come on. It, I, I, I have no, it's no, no objection to anyone speaking <laughs> about this. I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with everyone. Uh, and by the way, I mean, it, it might seem paradoxical that I am a car enthusiast in a way but i'm i'm the same way like my wife is a horse enthusiast right. i mean I, I i i i love the things but they're they're to me a passion almost that's painful because it it's kind of of a of a bygone era well I, and I, I i wanted to give you a reflection on that because when i was 12 years old um i begged my father we, I, so i come from australia we we're on a trip in in germany and i begged my father to take me to mercedes uh Sindelfingen plant and there i saw the <laughs> w140 series mercedes s-class being built and it changed me uh, you know, I became an industrial yeah, yeah. designer off the back of that. I became a car designer. I actually own a W140 now for my sins. You oh, wanna, you do! Oh my God! You, it's, well, you, and it's a V12. You want you want to talk about difficult cars? Well, okay, <laughs> wait a minute. Because the single thing and means something to me as well. Ah. Um, well, come on, um, it's formative as well. M my life began because I, I was born in Romania, but I, I my family emigrated. Uh, to to when I was only nine years old, and I had not even been in a car when I was nine years old. Right. I had I grew up we grew up in Romania without an auto, automobile. The only ones that were available were these copies of a of a uh, the Dacias were copies of a Renault. Right, but even they were out of reach for us. And the first ride I had was in the Mercedes in Germany, and um, it, it would have been an equivalent of an S class, but it was the nineteen seventies. 
and um, and then my the first car I ever bought with my own money uh, was a Mercedes, a 190. As a result, I've owned one of those too. <laughs> I still have it. I still have it. It's a 1992. Yep. And um, I'm never going to sell it. And it um, it's in storage. And um, and I've owned many Mercedes since. And so when I picked up the 190, I actually had the European delivery. And uh, this was an option available back then right. where you flew to Europe and then you went to the factory. And of course, you it went was to Sindelfingen. You went to Sindelfingen, yeah. And the the horror of it, though, was that it was a holiday when I arrived and the, the, the plant was not open. Oh, no. But um, I, I, I got the pick. I picked it up at the factory. They, they you know, me and my parents, actually, we, all of us together flew out there and I drove it all around Europe and had it shipped back to the United States where it still resides today, but I'm thinking to bring it back to Europe. Um, I've done them with more than one car. Um, and, and, and so I don't get rid of cars. I keep them forever, which is one of the reasons I ended up accumulating so many, but, um, and, 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 and so I, yeah, I mean, it's a long story and I can explain myself, I think, but my son, weirdly, who's now 17, he's obsessed with cars too. Right. And, um, more so than I was because I didn't follow career in automotive. I followed it in engineering and electrical engineering, but, um, but I went back to it later in life when I thought, Hey, this is kind of fun. Like I would watch with my son programs like wheeler dealers or top gear. And, and, and he was so excited about this industry. I, I, I began to be more and more encouraging him because, you know, I, I, it was his passion. So part of it actually had to do with my son really becoming uh, <laughs> a car enthusiast at an early age that I encouraged him. And, and, um, and so he's the one who became obsessed about sobs. And so we ended up um, doing restorations on a few. And then, um, um, you know, I, I transitioned, I went to electric as well, but I said, you know, I built my own mostly because at the time when it, it was 2014, 15, when I was curious about the future of the auto industry, I said, I found out that you can, you can actually convert old cars. And right. I said, well, how hard is it making an electric car? My assumption was that it's not as hard as making an internal combustion car because I know how hard that is. Right. Um, and you don't have to deal with so many of these um, issues with, with the transmissions and, 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 you know, uh, oil and pressures and, and heat and vibrations and all these other problems, which I knew cause uh, engineers a huge headache. And so that's why I went through this process of building my own to, to, I guess, really understand, of course, as, as an amateur would, but, but, um, at that moment, I also did, you know, one of the theses was out there that, that Tesla was going to take over the, the industry. And, um, you, you know, the theory of disruption suggests otherwise. So I, I, I wanted to confirm or deny that hypothesis. And, and so that's another long story. And I've, I've, been, I've been very much alone in the wilderness on that thesis of Tesla not being, yeah. uh, um, you know, uh, the revolutionary company that everyone claims. Um, and I have yet to change my mind. So, because anyway. nobody nobody wants to admit it, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a relatively trivial. It's a relatively trivial shift. Um, it is, and the way the word we use is sustaining, because the idea is 
that you're making a better car. Right. And yeah, it's it's worse on one dimension. It's the range. Right. But that's getting better and it's it's adequate. The 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 problem is that I, I don't see any automaker looking at an electric car and then saying, you know, this takes less people to make, it it takes less parts to make, it's got fewer you know, complexity, it's much better performance. We can charge more money. Yes, it's harder to source some of the parts, right. but we can get over that because we're all about supply chain anyway. Right. So I don't see any automaker looking at electric drive and a, a, apart from, again, the supply question, looking at it and say, I better run the hell up the opposite way and never ever touch this technology again yeah. because that's it's it, it, it makes a better car. And that, that's why I found it difficult to suggest that you know the incumbents would not respond to Tesla in 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 uh, in kind, um, of course they did, and and that, that that's yes, it's it's taking long, and this is why everybody who's in tech is so impatient. It's like, well, obviously he, you know, they won five years. It's been five years. It's over. Well, I also know that the auto industry moves much more slowly. Sure, and there's there's an, the incumbents are have a lot of patience and have a lot of sales that can sustain them long term. So anyway, thank you so, so much. I mean, this was just a delight. So there you have it, folks, a whistle stop tour of an urban mobility future that is far more sustainable, equitable and enjoyable than what most of us experience today. But it's a future that's not without its challenges. In the West, we've had 120 years to get used to the idea of getting around in cars. And car makers have had 120 years to perfect their design development and manufacture. This won't be undone overnight. And in developing countries, the race is on to mobilize the masses, a task for which micromobility is primed. But we need to ensure that we can accomplish that safely and equitably. And our cities, long disfigured to accommodate cars at the expense of citizens, will need a rethink if we're going to make the transition to millions of small electrified vehicles. But here's the thing, as Horace has illustrated, there is so much opportunity here. There is so much potential that it's really hard not to get excited about a micromobility future. This special edition of The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Drew Smith with very special thanks to Horace Dediu. Created in collaboration with Ample, produced by Josh Butt, with big thanks to sponsors BMW and GIO. This is Drew Smith, and thanks for listening.